Hi folks, I'm Ian McKenzie. Welcome to another episode of Political Bites, our new podcast series from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. In today's episode, we hear from my colleague Richard Sakwa on the Ukraine crisis and chances for peace. Richard is a professor of Russian and European politics here at Kent. Amongst many books on these themes, he has written recently on Frontline Ukraine, the post-Cold War crisis of world order, and a recent book on the Putin paradox. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Richard. In her famous book, The Guns of August, Barbara Tuchman argued that in 1914, the nations were caught in a trap, a trap from which there was and has been no exit. This is similar to where we are now, 100 years later, with the crisis in Ukraine that exploded in 2014, a symptom rather than the cause of the broader crisis in European security and global order. In the 25 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the end of the Cold War in that year, none of the fundamental questions of European security were resolved, giving rise to the quarter century of the Cold Peace, which in 2014 gave way to a renewed period of confrontation that some people call a second Cold War. The fundamental background to it is that two fundamentally logical ways of understanding European order were at work, both rational in their own terms, but made irrational when seen in the larger context of the challenge of creating a viable security order in a continent that has been so often devastated by war. In other words, the logical is not always the most rational, as in the incompatible logics that led to war in 1914. It is not clear how the post-Cold War logical traps can be escaped. The perspective of alternative rationalities may provide an explanation of the logical traps, if not to supply a way out. So let us look at these competing rationalities a little bit more. This issue has been long identified as one of the main factors causing the breakdown in relations between the European Union and Russia. But we can look at it more widely. On the one side, there is the logic of expansion after 1989. This made perfect sense from the perspective of what came to be seen as the victors at the end of the Cold War. The long-term adversary the Soviet Union, had not just renounced the ideology in whose name the struggle against capitalist democracy had been waged, but two years later, the whole country itself disintegrated in 1991. This really did look like the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama argued at that time, with no sustained ideological alternative to capitalist modernity on offer. The expansive dynamic of the victorious West, moreover, was welcomed and embraced by much of the former Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe and even some of the post-Soviet states. And they all seemed to apply to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and the EU. They became part of the core of what at this time was called the liberal international order, which seemed to offer globalization, economic development and peace and prosperity, with state interests subordinated to the larger logic of multilateralism and economic globalisation. If the issue had simply been the enlargement of an impartial and universal normative order, then some of the later issues may have been avoided. 
However, at the heart of that liberal international order, there was a power system that was far from impartial and universal. This is, in particular, the United States and NATO at the heart of the Atlantic power system. And this Atlantic power system claimed not only to be universal, it even presented itself as being synonymous with order itself. From the beginning, this logic of expansion was opposed by Russia, the continuous state to the Soviet Union. Gorbachev, Mikhail Sergeyevich, had been the last Soviet leader and who led the process of reform known as Perestroika. He considered the end of the Cold War a mutual victory, the triumph of what he called the new political thinking and the idea that a new type of international politics could be established. So the logic of expansion of the Atlantic power system of the liberal international order was countered by the logic of transformation, the view that the end of the Cold War offered a unique opportunity not only to move beyond ideological confrontation between and within states, but to reset international politics in its entirety. So we have two logics, two sensible, two ways of looking at the world. They were not entirely incompatible. They were able, if there had been the will and new institutions, to work together. But in the end, they came into competition. And this is where, in 2014, they came into outright confrontation. And Ukraine was the cause of it all, in some ways, which led to the final and definitive end of that cold peace, which had lasted 25 years, from 1989 to 2014. So this was a tension between uh, logic and rationality. Both systems were logical, but when they combined in confrontation, it became irrational. We could draw on Max Weber's distinction between formal and substantive rationality here, where he says formal rationality refers to logical calculation determined by rules, regulations and laws to maximise profitability in all senses and is often negligent of humanity. He then talks about the alternative, substantive rationality, which is guided, the ends are guided by a set of human values. In our case, that means peace and reconciliation. So this is a framework in which the Ukraine syndrome developed. So let's move on to look at that. The two models of post-Cold War international order came into confrontation and they were then weaponized by competing domestic models of Ukrainian development. The division between the more pro-Western social forces in the west of the country and more pro-Russian inclinations in the east and the south had long been visible in different voting patterns. And this difference in geopolitical views was accompanied by two competing models of state development within Ukraine. On the one side, we have the monist, or single model, which stresses the development of a culturally distinctive and politically assertive form of Ukrainian nationalism. This draws on the integral nationalism of earlier years, although it's not entirely the same as the interwar types of Ukrainian nationalism, but it certainly does have elements of what we can call 
neo-nationalism. This takes the view that Ukraine is a single-minded view of Ukraine and it assumes that there is a single language, a single culture that should take priority over all the other forms. And indeed, the 1996 constitution gave legal force to the idea of Ukraine as a politically monolingual country, with Ukrainian language the only state language, although the use of other languages was recognised in the non-political sphere. All documentation and official records are in the one language, even though a very large proportion of the population is multilingual, some estimates up to 80%, with about 20% predominantly Russian-speaking. So this model of Ukrainian state-building was challenged by another model. This is a more pluralistic one. This is the view that Ukraine today is a pluralistic, multilingual, multicultural society, and that this should have constitutional force and be reflected in the constitution. It is this tension between the monist, neo-nationalist and pluralistic interpretations of Ukrainian national identity that gave rise to the Ukraine syndrome and this led to conflict. In the final section now we can talk about the way that this conflict then took violent military form after 2014 in Crimea it led to the restoration or annexation of the territory uh, which had been transferred from Russia to Ukraine in 1954 and now it was returned. But the violence took place in the Donbass too, overwhelmingly Russophone parts of Ukraine, Donetsk and Lugansk. The actual fighting came to an end on the basis of the Minsk II agreement of February 2014 and this is the basis for the continuation of some sort of peace process. But Minsk, which suggests a certain sequence of events, uh, which is much contested, the return of the borders to Ukrainian sovereignty and uh, elections to be held in the territories, that these were going to be uh, much debated about the order in which these should take place. So we have these two violent or two now, militarised visions of Ukraine, which came into conflict in the Donbass. We have the Minsk Peace Accords of 2015, and therefore, uh, on that basis, some sort of way to go. President Zelensky, Vladimir, was elected in 2019 with overwhelming vote in the presidential elections of April 2019. And the basis of his platform was peace in the Donbass, and he's made a lot of efforts to do so. However, he is limited by the neo-nationalist vision of Ukraine, which now is defended not only by uh, the constitution, but also by armed militant formations, the former president, Petro Poroshenko, and a lot of others. His room for manoeuvre is very limited. Nevertheless, he's quite clear that he wants to have peace. How to do this? Is there an exit route from this dead-end conflict? It's not quite clear how. There's a possibility of four ways out. The first is for Russia to accept the dominance of the Atlantic power system. And this isn't going to happen because this is uh, not just Vladimir Putin, but his predecessor Yeltsin refused to accept that they would be a subordinate element of this 
Atlantic power system. So the second way out is the opposite, and that is for the expansionist logic, which I've suggested dominated before by the West, it transforms into and accepts Gorbachev's idea of a establishing a transformation based on the principles of 1989-1990, new institutions, new ideology in which NATO would become maybe redundant. And in other words, this post-Atlanticist vision way out. Not sure that's going to work either. So the third possibility is a great power bargain, the grand bargain, in which not just Crimea, not just the Donbass, but maybe a whole stack of other issues are solved by superpower symmetry. Trump is obviously keen on this. Putin would like this to happen, but they're not really being allowed to do that. The fourth option is the simply an acceptance that this conflict is not easily resolved and to manage the conflict rather than put an end to it. So a lot of ideas on this way. Just there's a possibility even of a fifth option based on sovereign internationalism and this could be based on the idea that given the fact that we're now facing the COVID-19 pandemic that this forces all societies perhaps to put the history of past conflicts to an end and to find a common platform to overcome not just this biggest crisis facing the world since 1945, but with it all those conflicts which have spoiled that peace since the end of the Cold War. So perhaps there is a way of formulating an exit on the basis of common challenges. Thanks for those fascinating insights, Richard. Well, that's it for episode three. We'll be back next week with more. As always, if you have a topic that you would like to see us discuss, then please contact us via email, polirnews at kent.ac.uk or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, which you can find in the show notes. And if Russian politics is your thing, we've linked Richard's recent book below. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>